This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Romans 12, 2 is very clear about what kind of mindset the Christian ought to have. It says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. First John two fifteen says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. So what are we to make of the growing trend of churches and even Christian organizations deliberately trying to be more like the world. Ostensibly, these Christians tout becoming like the culture in order to reach it with the gospel, but in fact, they are the ones who sometimes end up being compromised, and the remedy for what ails us can only be the gospel of Jesus Christ and the unchanging word of God. So we are going to tackle this issue today with Sam Rohr. Sam is president of American Pastors Network and the Pennsylvania Pastors Network, co-host of the American Pastors Network's national radio program, Stand in the Gap Today, and it's wonderful to welcome you back. Sam, how are you doing? Janet, I am doing well, thank you, and it's a privilege to be back with you on your program. Well, it's great to have you here. I know you recently tackled this question, are today's churches of the culture or in the culture? And I thought that was a really good question. What do you think the answer to that is? What are you observing? Uh, I think without a doubt, uh, the, the American church is far more of the culture than in the culture, uh, meaning that um, the standard setting, the standard setter of our culture uh, is not the church. Uh, it's, uh, it's the media, it's the it's politicians, it's somebody else, but it's not the Word of God. Hmm. And how, how do we know that? Well, look at where we've gone. Look, look, look at what the institutions of government have become. Look at the rulings that have been made. Look at the dominant... Um, uh, the, the dominant standard of culture that would evidence um, anything relative to right or wrong. There isn't any. Right. Well, well, who are, what is the, the benchmark for those kinds of things in a society? Well, it is the Word of God, and it is to be put out there by the Church and by Christians. And I just ask a simple question. If 74%, which is the number of the latest, I think, uh, George Barnard research, 74% of all those in America say they're Christians. Well, then shouldn't that look like, shouldn't we look different? Yeah. So so we have a, I think we've got a problem, Janet, with that uh, there's a difference between what being a Christian is or, you know, and being Christian. I mean, you can you can be Christian or you can be a Christian. You can... You can play church, or you can be the church. You know that, and I think that we've been playing around the edges. And I believe there's nothing more required than to back up and say, "Where are we? Where are we?" 
and it doesn't reflect the, the, the pages of Scripture. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think when you mentioned Barna, you think of all the statistics that have come out lately about Bible reading and pathetic numbers within the church of Bible reading and Bible study. It's very embarrassing to read those statistics. There was one recently from Barna about the lack of interest among Christians in evangelism. And I think it's very interesting, Sam, because I was reading a Vance Habner book recently, and he had an interesting line about that. And he said, all our study courses, promotion, pet meetings, and kickoff suppers avail nothing in attempting to get people to do what they don't want to do anyway. We're trying to get people to sing when they don't have a song and to witness when they have no testimony. Do you think that that would be an accurate description of where we are, that in fact the reason we can't mobilize Christians to do what they're doing is perhaps we don't have as many Christians in the church as we think we do? Uh, Janet, I think uh, I think that that's absolutely uh, the evidence of it. Uh, and again, uh, research is valuable when the research is done well. But uh, again, I want to go back to George, because George is, uh, does probably some of the best uh, long-term uh, surveys of anyone. But we in our program, Standing Up Today, some months ago, covered some of his research, and it was on where Christians are in this culture. And that's where that 74% number came from. And out of that same research, when he brought, broke it down further, it was less than 30% uh, would say that they've had some relationship with Jesus Christ, some encounter with Christ. They didn't actually use the word born again, but they had some encounter with Christ, which would lead a person to say they probably are born again. But when then you looked at that that group, and you broke that group, that qualified group, those that, that third of the total, uh, broke them down, you know, when you have numbers that say 55% or so don't believe that the Holy Spirit is real mm. or that the devil is real, um, and, and, and over a majority don't believe that Jesus Christ himself led a totally sinless, earthly life, and 70-some percent said they, it really doesn't make any difference. Uh, they, they, they would say that faith is important, but not necessarily what faith. Don't have to be so precise on what faith, just have faith. Wow. That's of that. That's of that number that would be what we'd say qualified. So when you when you break them all down, I mean, I had this encounter with George. I said, George, I mean, if you back up and you look at it, you would have to come to the point of saying there's less than ten percent. What what would you say based on your numbers over this time and the latest data? What would it show? He said between seven and eight percent. And Janet, that goes to the issue of what you're talking about. If we had 74%, if we had all of those who say they're Christians in this country actually were and actually lived it and actually manifested true salt and light, this culture would not be the same as it is now. No. But, but you're talking a much smaller number, but you're talking, and, but God's always used a remnant, so I'm not overly concerned about that, but what I am concerned about is that when we have so many in the pulpits themselves who are standing and opening up the, the Word of God, more or less, but they're not communicating these facts, and they're not communicating the true gospel, and, and, the, and, the, and, and half of that congregation could be sitting there thinking that they're all right with God, but they have never really come to a personal knowledge of Him. This is the confusing part, and so the culture comes back away and says, well, hey, what are we, Christians, what, what are they, who are they? Uh, That's what we're dealing with, and that, I think, is the real reason why I'd say that we are the churches of the culture, uh, 
I mean, it's it's of the culture. We're not we're not directing the culture because it's a, such a small number who actually believe that God is who God says He is. Well, when you talk to pastors throughout the country, and I know this is what you're all about, what is their assessment of where the problem lies? Clearly, we have some major problems, even within conservative Christianity, which are reflected in those numbers you've just mentioned. What is the general consensus on why we are where we are from the perspective of the men in the pulpits? I think it depends. Again, I'm going to have to break it into two categories. If Of those that I would call remnant pastors, yeah. those who understand what we're saying right now and, uh, and, and believe that they are like the, the, the Elijah who's carrying the banner, many times they feel like they're alone. And that's so maybe they're not as aggressive, perhaps, as they should. Many of them are just feeling kind of worn out a little bit because they've been fighting for so long. But as far as why we've gotten to where we are, which is your question, uh, I think those remnant pastors would would say that um, that that we have become comfortable uh, as a nation, and uh, and ultimately most of those know what the numbers are. That research would it would indicate that we've really walked away from the authority of Scripture. We've left, we've we've we we've the pulpits and many in the pews have gone along with it and have said, yeah, I believe that God is God. But be so precise? Oh, how can you be so precise and so demanding? And we've picked up the mentality that we've had in this nation, which has been, uh, I mean, there's, blessing, there's a positive side to blessing, and there's also a downside to blessing. And that is that we've tended to think that we can come and pick and choose, and kind of like a menu approach, we have so many choices. Uh, we've applied that to our faith and think, well, you can pick and choose from the pages of Scripture what you want to do, and God is gracious, and we, and, and he, He's merciful, and He is, but we've taken that for granted, and we've gotten uh, pretty easy uh, in what we think and how we live, and I think I, I go right to Scripture, and I say, we're like Revelation 3, where God looks at the, the church of Laodicea, and they think that they are just fantastic. They're wealthy. They're secure. They, uh, they feel good about themselves. And God says, you don't have any idea that you're naked and destitute and you can't even see. I think that's where we are. It's because we've walked away from God and just gotten comfortable. We sure have. We're going to pick up the discussion on the other side of the break. Sam Rohrer with us from American Pastors Network. And we'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. Don't go away. When I found out I was pregnant, I was devastated. I had no idea what to do. When a young mom faces an unplanned pregnancy, she's confused and scared. Society tells her that a baby is not a life and offers termination as the best solution. Preborn centers shine light into the darkness by offering young moms in crisis hope, love, and life and an ultrasound to meet their preborn baby. As soon as I get there, I felt welcome. They gave me the first look at my baby by providing a free ultrasound. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-2229 or there's 
there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today. Thank you for joining us. I think of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, referencing that when we grow up in Christ, we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Sam Rohrer is with us today from the American Pastors Network, and we are answering the question, are today's churches of the culture or in the culture? And I think it's obvious, Sam, from a lot of these statistics we've been discussing, that we are too much of the the culture, even though scripture is very clear about the fact that we should not be conformed to this world. Now, where this takes us is a very disturbing thing. And I know you've been paying attention to these same trends as well. When we look out across not just liberal mainline Christianity these days, but increasingly traditionally conservative evangelical churches, we're beginning to see a lot of this social gospel theological liberalism and political liberal advocacy seeping into our own churches. And I think for a lot of conservatives who've been growing up in these churches, it's a shock to the system. What in the world is going on? Pro-gay Christianity, intersectionality, social justice, feminism, this kind of thing. What is your take on what we're seeing in terms of the infiltration of liberalism and liberal politics in particular into traditionally conservative evangelical quarters. You know, it's interesting that uh, our radio program today, we dealt on this issue. And, I, and, and because we're, uh, we're sensing the same thing, Janet, um, uh, I, I went to the book of Jude. And in the book of Jude, uh, he writes to the church and he says, I, I want you to know that you need to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once delivered to you, but to the saints, for certain men have crept or creeping in unnoticed. And then it goes on and it talks about turning the grace of God into lewdness and deny the, 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 the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, how is it happening? Because there's a cer- there are certain ideologies represented by, by people who embrace them, who creep in unaware right. into our churches, into the church at large. With what? With, well, with another gospel, with um, having a good look, perhaps, but then taking, turning, and twisting. And I think that, you, you know, you mentioned the area of the social gospel and social justice and so forth. That, that whole area uh, is one that I've, I find to be most permeating here 
And, and I would have to say, I would take it back. It is, a, it is a devil mindset, but if I were to put a human ideology onto it, it's really Marxist thought. It's yes. Marxism thought. Yes. That uh, has its view of economics and the poor and the rich and the distribution of wealth and all of those things that our, you know, our listeners right now would, would understand have generally come from the Marxist political sideline, side but they have found their way very, very stealthily into the church, and certain church leaders have picked up this mantra, mantra, and and have attempted to, to really take and turn what God has said relative to that, and 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 turn it so that uh, the church's role becomes trying to equalize uh, uh, avenues of wealth and and uh, and to and to make the poor rich as the major purpose, rather than understand that these things come from a change of heart with the preaching of the true gospel, not not this kind of twisting. And this is this is catching on across the country in a very very disturbing uh, disturbing way. And that's that's another way of that the church is becoming a part of the culture, doing the bidding of certain individuals who have a lot of money, a lot of George Soros money going into people. Oh yeah, right now that's uh, directing things, and, and and that's a Marxist thought. But under underneath of it, it cuts the cuts the heart out of the Word of God. It takes the salt out of the saltiness of true believers, and it takes our form of government here, which was set up as a holy experiment under God, and transforms it into a into a form of government that believes that they are God, and government becomes God. And so God himself, these things are all wrapped together. I think they yes. really are. I agree with you. One of the things that comes to my mind as you're describing that, Sam, was my experience at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting just recently in Dallas. And the most striking thing to me of the entire two days that I was there was when we were sitting in the general session, and at the beginning they had a Pledge of Allegiance to the flag and then sang the national anthem. And I know there are Christians who will say, this is supposed to be about Jesus. I don't want to bring in anything about my country, even though I love my country. But that was not what I witnessed. And I talked to a number of other pastors who saw the same thing. Instead, what I saw was a number of millennial pastors standing, refusing to sing the anthem, refusing to say the pledge, but holding themselves in this really angry posture, arms folded, glaring at people who were saying the the Pledge of Allegiance, things like that. So one of the things that I've seen when you're talking about cultural Marxism from some of the social justice crowd is not just merely trying to make the point that we are to be about Jesus Christ, he's our king, and let's not forget that, but an almost anti-Americanism that is becoming more and more blatant. And that terrifies me, not because I put my country above the Lord. I don't. But because the United States has been given such great blessings from the Lord in terms of individual rights and freedom, and that's led to the fact that we've been able to be the greatest missionary force in human history. Can you talk a little bit about that, how the anti-Americanism that sometimes seeps into these circles is affecting the church? Boy, um, in, in in a short sense, yes, I can, and I think, I think Janet, the the, the thing that would be most probably easy to grasp uh, from our listeners is that at the heart of this is an attempt to change uh, our worldview. Uh, when you tie 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 together our nation, when I said we were a shining city on a hill and a holy experiment, William Penn, that was because they understood that God works with nations and people according to very specific things. That's a Judeo-Christian way of looking at life. But if you cut the legs out from underneath of that, then 
then freedom, truth, justice, mercy, the purpose for the church, the purpose and the role of the family and children, the purpose and the role of government, all change. And a Marxist thought we're talking about, which has really been clearly the undercutting piece of it, is anti-God, anti-Jesus Christ, anti-biblical worldview, anti-family, pro uh, anti-God designed human sexuality. All of those things, it's a complete opposite. And when that gets brought into the church, if people come in bringing that world view, then of necessity, the purpose of the gospel, the definition of the true gospel, um, the, 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 the true need for uh, missions and for sharing, all of that begins to change of necessity when that world view changes. And of course, back to research, we know, you mentioned millennials, only about 3% of millennials hold a biblical worldview. So mm-hmm. when you tell me that you see a young pastor, millennial pastor stand up and almost defiantly not pledge, that is a worldview change reflected, I think, by, by the survey, but it reflects fundamentally a distortion of the understanding of the authority of God's Word, and that's the most disturbing thing. If that gets changed... If God's Word gets pushed off of its pedestal, which these things would indicate it has, then what, what is driving us? It's idolatry. It's man-centered um, the religion, and it's the exact thing that God speaks to Israel all through the Old Testament. Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of the prophets, he went to Israel and said, you've walked away from me. I've given you my law, you knew it, and you've walked away from me, and now you're going to suffer the consequences. We've brought that into the church, and when the church comes the purveyor of a twisted view of the gospel, the whole counsel of God, and who Jesus Christ is in his person, and God is in his nature, when that happens, then, then, then you've reached the kind of point I think our culture would describe itself to be right now, and the church, therefore, is, becomes a participant. And God says the, he's gonna, he'll spew them out of his mouth. I mean, these are serious days, Janet. They're very, very serious. I agree with you 100% on what you just said. Sam, when we are talking about going back to the authority of Scripture and the necessity of not just adhering to it, but protecting it, the authority of God's Word in our lives and everything that we think and everything that we do, what is the way back? What are some of your thoughts on how listeners who are hearing us speak about these things and are concerned about them to remain faithful to the Lord and his word in the midst of these trends, because it is easy to feel discouraged and to say, there's nothing I can do about it. If these guys are going to go off the rails, what can I do about it? How would you encourage those listeners in these days? Well, you know, once I hear the numbers like we have, I I tell people, first of all, first off, when you look in the mirror, look into your own eyes and look into your own heart and make sure that you yourself are truly trusting in Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven. Great. Because we know so many are deceived already, the numbers would indicate it. No one should just believe that because they feel good about themselves that they are, in fact, a redeemed child of God. So I tell pastors, don't when you look out and you think that maybe half of that congregation may not be true believers, we've got to start at the very foundation. Make sure salvation and Jesus Christ is there alone. Then number, then number two, then say, do I have a heart and a passion to obey God and all that he says? Because God blesses, or God hinges blessing, individual and national blessing, on obedience. Right. 
So we've got to say, we've got to obey. And then the third one is, just like Joshua's, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. There has to be a purposeful choice, and we need the courage. And so I pray for courage every day. Lord, help me to know your way. I know who you are. Help me to have wisdom and discernment, to be alert to what's happening, and the courage to stand in the gap for truth wherever I can. That means that means talking to my neighbors and my friends about the Lord. Don't just assume they know. Talk with them. And when in the presence of evil, don't walk away. Best thing to do, quote scripture and be some salt and light in that cult. And now if that happens, and all who are listening do that, God will hear that, and God will change this country, even now. I would love that. Well, check out AmericanPastorsNetwork.net and stand in the gap today. Sam Rohrer with us. Sam, always an honor. Thank you so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Janet. God bless you. And we'll be back on Janet Mefford today after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. This is Janet Mefford Today. You might remember a 2013 Barna survey that found 51% of self-identified Christians were more like the Pharisees than they were like Christ in their attitudes and their actions. And then that led to a number of responses from sites like the Huffington Post, in which one writer commented that Christians actually deserve to be hated. Well, there's really no doubt that Christians do not have a perfect track record. We'll admit to that. But do Christians really deserve to be hated? In fact, there are a lot of people in our day who think any hatred we happen to draw is richly deserved, based on reasons both sound, but more often spurious. Well, my next guest, in fact, notes that anti-Christian hostility, a true Christianophobia, is actually real. Why is that? And what should Christians do about it? We're going to discuss it today with Dr. George Yancey. He is professor of sociology at the University of North Texas and the author of a new book. It's called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Dr. Yancey, it's great to have you here. How are you today? Pretty good. How are you doing? Doing fine. Now, this is interesting because I do meet non-Christians or I'll read non-Christians who say Christians are crazy if they think there's any anti-Christian bias out there. What do you say to that? Well, your friends are wrong because the science says that your friends are wrong. (laughs) Good. Uh, Yeah, I used a national uh, sample, uh, a, a survey to determine bias against different religious groups. And the group that faced the most bias was atheists. But second was fundamentalist Christian. Wow. And what's really telling is who has that bias uh, or that hostility. And those are individuals who tend to be rich, tend to be educated, white, male. In other words, people who are fairly powerful in our society. Huh. Interesting. Now, when you were taking this survey and you were doing your research, what sorts of questions did you pose to extrapolate this anti-Christian bias that you found? That, the first survey I didn't actually design. I used secondary data. Uh, I did design a, a, a smaller survey that's not a probability sample where I used open-ended questions to get at the attitudes people had towards Christians. And that's where I was able to really 
dig into what does hostility mean. Right. Now, so when you're talking to progressives, rich, educated, you know, on the more educated side of things, why do you think it is that you're finding that sample of the demographics uh, feeling the way they feel about Christians? Well, as a sociologist, I, I, I speculate that part of it is sort of a, what we call group interest theory. In other words, if you have a group and they have a certain interest that, are, that they want, and some other group challenges it, then they're going to have more anger or hatred towards that group. And when I think about cultural progressives, not all, of course, but many of them have an ideology that is threatened by the notion of of traditional Christianity, uh, an ideology of of humanism, of human choice, and that sort of thing. So I think that that is at least one explanation uh, for it. Okay, so when you're looking at the anti-Christian bias in society, where would you say it rears its ugly head most often? Would you say there's one particular sector uh, or a particular issue in which you find this bias coming out with the biggest teeth or the sharpest teeth, so to speak? Well, because uh, it's not really been studied that much, it's hard to say where it's, it's the most uh, vitriol. However, what I've studied also is academia. Right. And so what I can say is in academia, if you are considered a Protestant, you're less likely to get hired, because I did a survey where I asked academics if you would be more or less willing to hire someone, you found out these things about them, and the thing that they are, they are least willing to hire is considered a Protestant. Yes. Yeah, so in academia, that really sort of has gone out beyond the realm of the university into the general culture. What is it like then as a Christian in academia and for those who are in other universities and colleges trying to serve their students and also hold a Christian worldview? What does that tend to be like for Christians? Well, I mean, it is a challenge. Uh, For me, uh, the challenge may not be as great for some other individuals, uh, but it is a challenge and you just learn to, to deal with it. I have tenure and I get, you know, I get my job done and, and so t- this today, I can say that there really isn't that much of a push on me. But I know I've, I've had graduate students come up to me and have professors say something to the effect of, well, I find out someone's a Christian, I'm going to make sure they don't graduate. Oh boy. So I do know that that is out there and, and it's not, I don't want to make it sound like it's insurmountable, but it does make it harder if you're a Christian to get through the program than if you're not a Christian. Absolutely. What would you say are some of the true biases, if you want to call it that, of of the people sampled versus the false ideas? In other words, you have people who have false ideas about Christians and say false things about Christians that gives away the bias, but where does the true separate from the false? Well, you know, any group, a large group like Christians, you're going to have some people who are doing things that are wrong. Sure. And when I did my opening the questions, I had people who would tell stories of how certain Christians mistreated them, and I have no reason to believe that they're lying. So there are times, of course, we, we as Christians do let people down. Right. Uh, there, and there is some research that suggests that in, in, there are some certain dynamics where Christians may not live up to what others are doing. I mean, we can still look at some racial issues and, and perhaps even some sexism. Yes. But a lot of it is myth. Uh, a lot of it is things that are blown out of proportion. Uh, and, and so we just have to uh, approach it and, and know that a lot of these myths, these stereotypes, 
are, are not based in reality. Well, one of the ones that pops to my mind is one I see quite often uh, in which someone will say, these right-wing Christians just want to enshrine a theocracy in America. They want to make America a theocracy and have maybe a Christian version of Sharia law or something like that. And yet it seems the evidence for that is very scant, and yet it persists. Why do you think it persists? You know, that, that's an interesting question. Why? I mean, because these people were, are highly educated. Right. Uh, so they're well-educated, uh, and, and so you would think that they would know better. But I do think that there's something that we call confirmation bias. Uh, and so when people get in their minds that they don't like a group, they'll look for evidence for the things they think they don't like about them. The whole theocracy thing, uh, you know, that's, all, that's kind of common whenever you don't like a, a religious group. You say they're trying to set up a theocracy. Yeah. Uh, and my reading of it is that what Christians want who are politically active is what other people want who are politically active. They want, they want to win at their issues. Sure. But the notion that Christians want to set up a, a government that's going to force everyone to become a Christian... Uh, I mean, I don't know anyone who's, who's said that in the past, I don't know, 30 years. Yes. Well, I often think to myself, don't you think Christians would have done it by now? They've been around for 200 years. Don't you think if there was really a theocracy that would force everybody to be a Christian uh, beyond the early colonial days, we would have done it by now. And yet what we got in, in, in America that was really drenched in Christianity was the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence, that it was religious freedom was extended to everybody. Well, Christians have had more power in the past, clearly, to have, to have done uh, some of these things. And, and, uh, yeah, and, of course, I'm not saying everything Christians have done in the past has been glorious. Right. However, the, the whole notion of theocracy, in part, the country was set up to get away from the theocracy. And so this is why—and uh, it, was, it was not just a few times. Many of my respondents talk about how Christians want to have a theocracy. Mm. So that sort of myth. Another interesting myth was they talked about how white Christians are. Huh. And yet my, my sample— uh, remember that people with Christian phobia are more likely to be white than others. Yes. And the sample that I got, it was there. It was I believe it was ninety-three percent white. And so there's a sort of, uh, there's a sort of hypocrisy there, talking about well, Christians are problematic. They're probably racist because they're so white, and yet the subculture is whiter than than other Americans. <laughs> That's ironic. Well, doesn't this get back maybe to a problem among some of them that they don't really know any Christians? There, there have been m- many people I've spoken with. How many evangelical Christians do you actually know personally? Well, I don't know. I don't live in flyover country, so I don't know anybody like that. But that, that could contribute to some of this believing of myths about Christians. I, I think you're, you're right on on that one. I, I do think part of this... And some of them even talked about how they got their information from, about Christians from MSNBC and from Salon and Ugh. from Huffington Post right. and, and the media. Uh, some of them did know Christians, but some of them did not. And we do know from research that when you don't have contact with people of a certain group, then you, you more easily develop the yeah. stereotypes in this. Hang on just a moment, Dr. George Yancey. We're talking hostile environment. His book will be back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four 
oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today. Thank you so much for joining us. My guest, Dr. George Yancey, his book is called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And this is a very hot topic right now, Dr. Yancey. A lot of Christians are beginning to wake up a little bit subsequent to the Supreme Court decision on marriage, for example, and saying, wow, a lot of people really hate us. But you say in your book that there are myths that people believe. And we were talking about some of those myths before we went to the break. What would you say are some of the other myths that you discovered as you were researching this topic? Well, you know, the first I mentioned was the whole theocracy thing and, and also the, uh, the, the Christians are overwhelmingly white. Uh, there's also myths about how intelligent Christians are or, and whether or not they engage in critical thinking. And, you know, I think that there's, you know, Christians probably don't engage in critical thinking any more than anyone else, but I don't think they engage in critical thinking any less than anyone else. Yes. There are myths that Christians are anti-science, uh, and a lot of times people point to evolution. Uh, you know, my response to that is you can find certain scientific elements in any group that they don't like. For example, many people don't are upset by GMOs, and science has shown that that's not a problem. Yeah. So it, it just seems that the sort of stereotypes, the negative stereotypes that people who don't like Christians want to believe, that they will... Uh, find evidence for those stereotypes, uh, even though that evidence is just their experience or something they heard on the news or or things of this nature. Wow, that's really interesting. So what about the dehumanization of Christians? You also referenced that in your book, that there are those who really sort of marginalize Christians, dehumanize them. How do you find that happening? Well, what I did is, and I pulled this from uh, an earlier book, which was more of a research book, uh, 
I used a scale of dehumanization that had been developed by another researcher. And then I looked at the comments of my respondents, and what I found was that, uh, in many ways, uh, their comments matched the scale. For example, one of the scales is that you, uh, treat, the, you treat the other group as if they're children hmm. and, and as if they need guidance. And lo and behold, many of my respondents talked about how Christians were, were, uh, were, didn't think uh, they, were, they, uh, they were easily led by evil leaders, they were childlike, hmm. uh, and, and therefore that was a problem. So uh, another, another example was irrationality, that if you dehumanize a group, you say that they can't think of themselves, they're irrational. I mean, one of my respondents talked about how irrational Christians are. <laughs> And so what I found is that how the way that dehumanization is measured uh, fit with the comments of my respondents. And this, I guess, is not totally surprising, because when we begin to hate another group, we do begin to see them as less than human. Right. And truly, some of my respondents don't really see Christians as fully human, even though if you ask them, they, of course, they would say, yes, they're human, but the way they respond to them is in a very dehumanizing manner. Now, what was there any part of the research that examined whether or not, by and large, these respondents had had negative experiences with Christians? In other words, do they draw these opinions largely because they had a bad interpersonal experience with Christians, or mainly because it's just the diet they may be getting from the internet or so, or, or whatever it might be? Yeah, we asked about their experience with Christians, and. and I didn't see a big difference as far as those who had uh, more intense hatred and those who did not, as far as the experience. Some of them, some of them did have a bad experience with Christians. Others simply had heard about Christians or, or as you said, got their diet from the Internet or for, from media or things of this nature. So I don't think experience in and of itself is the determining factor. I do think a lack of contact is that, you know, that they don't tend to have Christians in their social networks, so they may or may not have had experiences with Christians in the past, but they tend not to have a lot of contacts with Christians today. That is, that's fascinating. I think that's really interesting to consider when you're looking at how people feel about Christians. So the question becomes, do we deserve some of this? Do we not? And how should we respond to this? We hear, you know, the admonitions about turning the other cheek, as Jesus said. Then we look at rights being lost and others say we need to fight for our rights. Where do you come down on the question of response to this sort of hostility? You know, I think it's a a balancing act. You know, I'm a Christian myself, so I think it's a balancing act. I mean, I do think that turning the other cheek has meaning to it. Uh, I don't think Jesus said that it was an accident. Right. Uh, But I'm also an African-American, and... When I think about, and I'm not saying that Christianophobia is like racism, but I do think that as an African-American, there are times where I cannot turn the other cheek because what's happening to me is dehumanizing because of my race. Mm -hmm. And if I let that go, then I'm setting up the next African-American to suffer because of what I've let go. Good point. And so I do think that we cannot capitulate. I think that we have to try to address this in as Christ-like a manner as possible. But I do think that we have to not capitulate, because I do think there are religious freedom issues here that are at stake. Sure. So, in other words, if you have a legal issue where your First Amendment freedoms may be trampled upon or some, some, you know, other sort of issue that is a legal matter, then it would be legitimate, you would say, for a Christian to seek legal remedy, just like any other citizen. 
I think we have to look at the look at uh, that direction. Now, one thing to uh, keep in mind is that unlike racism or or anti-Semitism or homophobia, <clears throat> Christianophobia is probably more likely to be something that has, has uh, affected a judge than those other isms. Hmm. Simply because if you think about who has Christianophobia, once again, it's people who are well-educated and fairly wealthy. Yes. And that's not the, the case when you look at those other isms. Hmm. People who tend to be racist are more likely to be uneducated. So I do think that the court system is going to be a mixed bag. Because yeah. uh, you don't have, this is not really out there in the larger society. So there's not really a stigma to it, at least not yet. And so people may act off of their Christianophobia, and it can be barely concealed. Mm. Uh, they're not going to say that they're doing this because they don't like Christians, but, you, you know, whereas when it comes to racism or, or even sexism, no one's going to really do that and barely conceal it. Uh, there, there's a more, there's a, there seems to be more of an acceptance of Christianophobia in our larger society than some of these other isms. And yet you will hear Christians rightly point out, hey, it's not as if we're like the Christians in the Middle East who are living in refugee camps and fleeing ISIS and getting crucified and so forth, these horrors that are taking place at the hands of terrorists. We are not persecuted like that in the United States. So there is a segment of society that will say, don't even complain, Christians. You have so much more here in the United States than most Christians around the world have. Where do you put into perspective what we are going through at the moment and what might be coming down the pike. I'm glad you brought that up, because I've never said that Christians are persecuted in the United States. Right. You, you know, other people may use that term, so I do not, because when I think about Christians around the world, and then I compare Christians to here, the, the, the difference is night and day. I do say Christians are discriminated against. I do say that in certain segments of our society, Christians face bigotry and discrimination. In other segments, not as much. So... Obviously, we are not in the Middle East, and, we, and I don't think Christians should talk about being persecuted. Yes. I think we should talk about what's fair, what's right, wanting to be treated as other groups, and I think there's some examples that show that, that Christians are not being treated as other groups. But persecution is a term that's so loaded that I think it doesn't do us that much good. No, you're right about that. That's a, a really important point. But then you do say in the book, we need to confront the hatred. You say we must confront the hatred. What would you say is the most effective means of doing that? Well, you know, I'm still on the journey of doing it myself. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of research on this and, and I've lived some of this out. But thinking through some of it, I find that the most useful tool for pointing out uh, that there's Christianophobia, because a lot of people will just deny it. Yes. Uh, beyond my research, if they don't accept the research, is to find situations that are comparable and then ask the question, why did it happen differently in this one situation as opposed to another? And I'll give you an example. <clears throat> the uh, shootings in France, uh, Charlie Hebdo. Yeah. Uh, after that, there were a series of cartoons uh, that were very dehumanizing to Muslims. And the AP refused to run those cartoons because they were dehumanizing the Muslims. Fair enough. Someone pointed out, though, that the AP still had pictures of the artwork known as Price mm. on their website. I remember that. So the AP then was confronted with their argument that we don't want to dehumanize people of, of faith, and yet they had a picture that clearly was dehumanizing Christians. Yes. They did take it down, 
once the hypocrisy was pointed out. Well, I think the first step, very much so, is to make an issue of it, as you've done in this great book. It really is a great book. It's called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias by Dr. George Yancey. It was such a pleasure to have you here. Dr. Yancey, keep up the good work. Thank you again for being with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And good luck with your show as well. Thank you so much. God bless you. And thanks a lot for listening today. We appreciate it. Our website is JanetMefford.com. God bless you.